Welcome to season four of Cooking Books with me, Jilly Smith, as I whisk you around the world through the magic of sound. The smouldering smell of wood burning marks this recognised truck stop, where we draw our tiny stools closer to the fire to ward off the chill and indulge in jazahin, an intense smoky broth packed with sweet charred dried shrimp, earthy wood ear mushrooms and slippery bean thread noodles. This week we're off to Mandalay with Mimi A before we head over the next few weeks to Italy with Christine Smallwood, to Marlowe with Tom Kerridge and good old London Town for a pie with Callum Franklin. But before we meet Mimi, this month Cooking the Books is sponsored by Odyssey, my favourite Greek Mediterranean ingredient specialists. I've been a disciple of the Mediterranean diet for 30 years since I wrote my very first book, The Mediterranean Health Diet, way back when the government first realised that it could be the answer to saving the NHS, which even then was buckling under the strain of our lifestyle-induced heart disease and cancers. Each week in Season 4, we'll find out why we need to be stocking up with Odyssey's healthiest products to support our immune system this COVID winter. This week, we're focusing on why it's good to cough, although keep it to yourself. Mediterranean diet expert Dr Simon Poole tells us why. Polyphenols are the antioxidants found in many Mediterranean plants, including olives and in extra virgin olive oil, which reduce inflammation and can support immunity. That's what we need to beat heart disease, diabetes and cancers, but also to keep ourselves as healthy as possible during these particularly challenging times in a pandemic but also for our longer life. It's possible to recognise the polyphenols in extra virgin olive oil because they will give some bitterness and some pepperiness and pungency to the flavour. And even when the oil is consumed by itself, can give you a slight cough sensation at the back of your throat. This is a good sign which shows that the extra virgin olive oil is rich in these helpful polyphenol compounds. Odyssey's Greek Kalamata PDO Extra Virgin Olive Oil is produced from polyphenol-rich olives from groves in the Kalamata region, where the olives are still harvested by hand. The oil is cold extracted within hours of the olives being picked to ensure the flavour and health benefits remain. Served with food, the pepperiness and the slight almond skin bitterness is a delicious and vital part of your healthy diet. Now, to Mimi A and to Mandalay, her beautifully written book, which transports us not just to the Burma of Shoreditch and the Rangoon sisters, who we'll hear from soon on Cooking the Books, but the deeply exotic hills of Mandalay and the land of rubies. Her book is a mix of childhood memories and family stories and a free-for-all cook-off with the ghosts of her grandparents, great-grandparents and anyone else she finds along the way. But let's start with the basics. Burma or Myanmar? So for me, it's Burma, and I think that is probably the case for most of the diaspora. Um, so it's an interesting thing. It's always been called Myanmar, but in written. So in literary, if you see it written down, Burma was always the colloquial form. Myanmar was always the, the form that was written in kind of ancient texts even. But the issue with the name Myanmar is that even to a Burmese tongue, it's quite hard to say. And I think that's why it got corrupted into Burma. Mm. Um so yes, for me, it's Burma. I think it is for most of the people outside of the country. Um, in Within the country, if you're a certain generation, so younger than I am, it's definitely Myanmar and it always has been Myanmar to you. But, yeah. you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks as far as I'm concerned. So. <laughs> and secondly, you were born in beautiful Margate, not Mandalay at all. You do take us to Mandalay and you take us right across Burma, but you were born in Margate. But it was those trips as a child, you've been going back Mm. all the way through your life to a really rich heritage in Burma. So take us, take us up those hills to Mandalay, first of all, where your family comes from. 
my earliest memories it's kind of weird some of some of them are slightly manufactured which is a weird thing to say um because my parents couldn't afford to take us back until i was eight years old um but because i had all of my family there i mean literally everyone apart from my direct family were in burma um we would phone them every weekend we would write to them they'd write back to us um and so i always had this family that loved me and i knew love i loved them but even though i'd never met them so i i already had quite a fixed idea of where you know I'd come from if you see what I mean even though I, I hadn't literally been born there um, and so I had these images I had photos that my parents had brought with them um, you know I, I had kind of the word pictures because you know um, all of the photos from when my parents were in the in their 20s even look like they're from the Edwardian times because <laughs> it's all sepia <laughs> so, and so as I said pe- people didn't generally have cameras it was it was a, a, a thing they, they couldn't send us photos you'd, you'd have those kind of airmail envelopes which were incredibly thin that were folded up so there were no enclosures so you know you'd have descriptions of what was going on and so it was kind of like a storybook land to me to some extent but at the same time incredibly prosaic I suppose because I knew this was where my family were and so I think in some ways I, I wasn't quite as appreciative as I ought to have been <laughs> that I had you know a life in in two different continents basically um and so Eight years old, um, we, we flew there for the first time, and it was it was kind of crazy because I'd had this relationship that had already been embedded in writing. It didn't feel alien to me in any way. I just felt like, oh, I'm finally, you know, seeing my aunts and uncles for the first time. Um, it kind of helped that my grandparents came to live with us here when I was three years old. So probably my earliest memories was having, you know, my 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 grandmother. Um, kind of at home with us she you know, she would do things like every day she would put Thanakar on me so Thanakar is this Burmese makeup which is basically sort of like sandalwood not quite but it's a fragrant bark um, that you kind of grind into a paste with water and it's incredible it's it's like um, a cure-all so it's good as sunscreen which is probably not as much use in this country um, <laughs> but it's also good for it's also good for bad skin it's also good for insect bites um, and as I said it's very fragrant so you know when when my grandmother was living with us she would put this little makeup on my face every day and you know she would she she actually she brought a pestle and mortar with us and goodness knows that must have been so much of the capacity of her, her luggage um but she had a pestle and mortar and so she would help my mother cook every day and you know again I would wake to the sound of kind of grinding and you know her bashing garlic and ginger and so those sounds even though they were in you know cold Margate or that by that time we'd moved to Kent um it it was a sound that I was already familiar with so when we went over to to Burma the only difference was it was blazingly hot but we still had the same sense coming to us we still had the same sounds kind of the morning chatter of my family um so it was both kind of very familiar and at the same time new but not in a new that would might have been kind of you know disconcerting yeah um so like I said, the, the thing about going to Mandalay is, well, you, you know, you say, that, you know, transported to Mandalay is that um, in those days, especially the only way you could get to Mandalay is you'd have to go to uh, Yangon first because that's where you know the plane took you in. And then when you were in Yangon, you had to take the train because there weren't internal flights. And so it was like 15 hours on the most kind of beautiful but painful train journey ever, um, which we normally did overnight because the idea was we were meant to get some sleep, which was a total, you know, it was a delusion. But basically, uh, we'd be on these beautiful kind of wooden seated trains and like every 
few hours, I think it would, it would stop and then you'd be at a village and people would come rushing to you with their kind of tiffin carriers full of things to sell you and baskets of wondrous goodies. So you know, I'd be able to stuff my mouth with, with things that actually weren't as familiar to me because we weren't able to get these fruits and these, these foods. So we'd get things like um, goat jerky, which were these lovely little twigs that were wrapped up with twine and and so you'd get a little parcel of this goat jerky twigs and then you get to chew on them a bit like pepperami i suppose um and then you would get people with bunches of rambutans which i'd never seen before oh, because my favorite fruit think... in the world oh really mm. but you know how they're, they're so beautifully spiky and it was just really really amusing and amazing to to, to me my, my brothers they they came over when they were a bit older so I, even though I was born here my brothers came over when they were six and nine and so they already were very you know they this was just home for them they were mm. coming home um and so they would laugh at me because I was just so kind of taken aback by things like Rome Return um taken aback by you know people coming running up to us with uh, you know things like chickens live chickens trying to sell them to us on the train and I just it was just really joyful really really joyful um and so you know we'd stop every few hours finally get to to Mandalay that would be very early in the morning um and then someone would come and pick us up um either in like a little jeep or um sometimes on the sidecars which are like the Mandalayan rickshaw and the way that that works is that you have a bicycle and then you have like the seats on the side um so like a motorcycle sidecar but on a bike so so we you know we we kind of trundle along get into town um and then my grandparents would just be waiting for us um and their house was just kind of really beautiful entirely wooden three layers of three layer three floors um and we'd be whisked in and then just the table would just be laden with absolutely everything that i would ever want to eat or dream of eating and so you'd be hit by this beautiful smell of kind of golden sticky rice um that was just kind of really fragrant and you'd have like the freshly toasted sesame seeds on top um and then there'd be like bowls of mohinga which is like our um our national dish um which is a fish stew but it's, it's not too fishy it's kind of just lovely and, and again really fragrant and so you know my grandparents would be like just tuck in and even though we were kind of tired and feeling drowsy and it was just you know you couldn't help but just immediately stuff your face <laughs> You absolutely transport us there. Read read the passage from uh, page 17, halfway up the mountain, Um, because you do this very well. I mean, you absolutely take us there. I mean, I've travelled all across Southeast Asia, uh, you know, in my younger days, but I vowed never to fly again. I don't know if I'm ever going to keep that up, but I'm trying my best. Yeah, because you know we just, have just to, for ethical reasons. Yeah, absolutely, to save the planet, yeah. you know, in my own yeah. tiny way. And if I can go overland, if I can try, you know, to take the time, I'm trying to plan a trip to to Japan at the moment, overland, yeah. and and trying oh, to. Wow. Yeah, I, I I really want to do it and make a big story out of it. But right now, I am in Burma, your Burma, and I am seeing and smelling all those wonderful things So the podcast will have to do for now. Um, and wonderful <laughs> books, of course. So take us to page 17, where you're going up to your mother's hometown of Mogo, which is the land of the rubies. Halfway up the mountain, we'd always pause at a little village called Shuinyang Bin, Golden Banyan, to stretch our legs and for the driver to have a well-earned rest. The smouldering smell of wood burning marked this recognised truck stop where we draw our tiny stools closer to the fire to ward off the chill and indulge in jazahin, an intense smoky broth packed with sweet charred dried shrimp, earthy wood ear mushrooms and slippery bean thread noodles. 
with a sprinkle of roasted chilli, a dash of fish sauce and a squeeze of lime, every spoonful warmed us and dazzled our taste buds. We'd also stuff ourselves with fried slices of potato, piping hot from the wok, similar to potato scallops and so much better than chips, and we'd have steamed tubes of bamboo crammed with sticky rice, which we'd open immediately, risking third-degree burns to get to the fragrant goodness inside. This feast was always followed by mugs of hot, sugary, milk-powdery coffee, an instant type known as three-in-one in Burma, and thick slabs of mongju, a kind of sweet, biscuity bread similar to shop-bought French toast. Forget motorway service stations. This was the way to break your journey in style. And as we watched the embers crackle and glow, we felt happy and snug and replete. Absolutely glorious i could i mean you feast on your words it's absolutely beautiful i also loved the kind of the the land of rubies the exotic grandparents and great aunts the (laughs) matriarchs the dissidents the women's uh, smoking cigars and trading with men i mean tell us a little bit about the role of women in burma this must have been so fantastic for you as a young young girl going over Oh, completely. I mean, it, it, it's funny because um, obviously, uh, to me, I didn't know any different. I always thought the world was made for women and that the, the world was a matriarchy. Um, you, you ask anyone with Burmese family or Burmese relations, it's the women that they're scared of because <laughs> the women are the ones that are in charge. Um, and so, you know, I, I went over and I was immediately clutched to the bosoms of, of my grandmother and, her, and all of her sisters, so all of my great aunts and all of my aunts and it, it really was a case where the men kind of, you know, did their thing. They, they you know, they, they might they might go to work, but in the in the end, they were kind of ignored. Um, because I mean, the thing about Burmese men generally is that even even if they do have jobs, um, they come home and they hand their salary to the women because the women run the household. They're they're the finance uh, runners in in the shops. If you go to any markets, if you go to any shops, if you go to even any hotels, it's women that are on the desks. That women that are kind of doing all of the the kind of the service industry work. There's women that are kind of you know, in in pretty much any visible role. You will generally see women rather than men. And so this is something that I thought was normal. <laughs> The women did own their own property. They didn't, they don't have surnames. They don't take on the mantle of their men. No, they don't. And and it's it's so yes we don't we don't have surnames we don't have surnames at all um we when you get married if you get married the son-in-law is expected to move in with the the, you know the wife's parents um you know there's no such thing as dowries or anything like that so see I I think I said in my book that we wear the trousers except we no one wears trousers (laughs) because we all wear sarongs um but uh, the point is is that there there is that equality the um I was kind of. On, on Twitter the other day, I posted this amazing video that I found, which was from the 1950s. And it's from a lady who was a barrister at the time, a Burmese barrister. And she was just giving a talk to a, like an American, a group of American women in Yangon. Um, and she's just explaining, you know, what life is like for us and how this is considered normal. And you kind of think this is this is really this is an amazing heritage to have and an amazing thing for me to want to live up to. And yeah, I think it gives you a certain amount of confidence that you wouldn't otherwise have because it is considered you know, women are as just as important and just just as essential as men are. Yeah. Um, we'll find out one, about one of your great aunts in your fourth food moment. But tell us about the land of rubies. Your family come from gems. There were riches in your family, all, all sadly lost now. But take us to the land <laughs> of rubies before we get into your food moments. So um, 
it, it, it's a funny thing. I guess it's one of those things that I think you have in quite a lot of countries. But the way we have wealth in Burma is that we don't, we've never trusted the government. Um, one of the reasons is because um, every so often in the past, the, the the people in charge, the military junta that was in charge, would just completely change the currency. So at one point, we had notes that were worth fifteen, thirty-five, and fifty. I think juts, juts is our currency, and then. Suddenly, the next day, they'd wipe out the currency and, and re, you know, change all the nominations. And so there's, all, there's long been a mistrust of kind of paper currency, which means that most of our riches is held in gems. And the reason we can do that is because our country is a country that you know, is a gem country. Um, so my mum is specifically from a place called Mogo, which um, is up in the mountains. And it's where 90% of the world's rubies come from. Um, and so it, to me, again, it's, a, it's completely bizarre. But growing up, it was really normal for everyone to have jewellery or to know everyone having jewellery, even if in other ways they were poor, you know, because the gems were your bank account. So <laughs> you you had, you know, the necklaces, the the rings, the, you know, the, the bracelets. My mum couldn't bring any of it. In fact, my mum had to sell most of her jewellery to come to this country. So <laughs> this is something she reminds us of on a, <laughs> a, a weekly basis, to be fair. Um, <laughs> But back in Burma, you know, everyone has gems. Um, and so Mogo, um, as I said, all the rubies come from there. My great, great grandfather, I can't, I never remember which, how many greats it is. He was known as the Ruby King. Um, he was Samat. And this is a story that I didn't mention in my book because it's kind of, I think it's a bit of a, a hoary legend. But basically, um, the tale goes that he was on top of... Um, he was stargazing I think they were saying although some people say he was drunk but basically he was on on top of his house on the roof of his house and he was just kind of looking up at the stars and he saw some shooting stars and he thought oh I'm going to follow where those shooting stars went and so he rushed to where they were and apparently started digging and and that's where his ruby mine came from so he he found rubies by following shooting stars (laughs) is this tale is this family tale which I didn't include in the book and so but, you know, whatever told him to do so, he did dig in a particular site and there was a gem mine there. And so this is something that's always been in my family. My my grandmother was um, one of the managers of a gem mine. My grandfather, this is my mum's side, um, he was a lapidarist. So his job was stone cutter, but also, you know, he would make jewellery and polish stones. Um, one of the things that I still have that I inherited is his loop. So he had a jeweller's loop, so he would use that to polish his gems. Um, so it's it, like you said, it, it, it's kind of normalised that there were just unpolished stones lying around in the house when we went to Mogo. Um, I went to the, one of the more recent mines that one of my uncles had shares in, and there was just this big chalkboard up um, which had a list of all of the most recent sales, obviously all being sold abroad. But it was just, you know, we were talking so many zeros, so many noughts that I lost track of how much these gems were being sold for. Um, and then there would just be trays lying around of just unpolished gems. And it was just a case where I would say to my mum, mum, do you think they'll give me something? And my mum would go, no, no, won't. But, but the thing is, because, because you, know, you know, when you polish gems, you will invariably get off cuts you will invariably get little bits um you'll also find lots of gems which aren't considered good enough to sell and so this has become a whole industry in itself in burma as well you have something called jalbaji and jalbaji literally means gem painting and what it is is it's like you know you'd have like a sand painting or a glitter painting except it's with crushed gems oh and so 
you'd have them like just you know being sold you know it's sometimes in beautiful jewelers but sometimes just on the marketplace you have these kind of little framed pictures of can a, a typical scene in burma so maybe a monastery or you know a celebration of festival made from crushed rubies and emeralds oh and diamonds God, incredible and, so, and you know and even if it is the poorest quality gem, it's still absolutely stunning, stunning. and glittering. And <laughs> so this is the backdrop against your first food moment because your wood ear and glass noodle soup comes from Moga, which is where we're talking about. This is the land of yes. rubies. Tell us why yes. this is your first food moment. Um, so, so actually, the, the, the passage that I read out is, is, is mainly why. So just elaborate on that a little bit more. Um, so it, it's kind of... Because we didn't really travel much when um, we were in this country. It was always something that was safe to, to visit home. Um, so we didn't really have the, the experience of going to service stations and stopping off and getting you know, a sandwich or whatever. So this was the first time I'd been on an epic journey anywhere, going up to the mountains. And then we'd stop and we were told, OK, we're going to stop for, for you know, a comfort break. We'll go to the toilet or we'll, we'll get something to eat. And the thing that I was hit by, um, and I, I'm not sure if I described it exactly right, was is the scent of the wood burning. Um, and the funny thing is, is that even now I have this Pavlovian thing where if it's bonfire night and you smell bonfires, you know, for other people, it you know it probably does mean sausages and baked potatoes and toffee apples. But for me, it means this dish, because that is it's such a kind of a reflective triggering smell that I smell bonfire, I smell smoke and I merely want to eat this beautiful, beautiful dish because... It is really warming. Um, it's you know one of the few dishes that you do eat piping hot because a lot of stuff in Burma is um, eaten kind of room temperature because you know, um, you know it's it's boiling hot. It's the, the climate that you're in. But this because you are in Mogo or like on the way to Mogo where it's actually really really cold. You want something that's just going to fill you with warmth immediately. And so you have this bonfire. You have you know these chips that I mentioned, these potato chips that you mentioned. I mentioned. Um, you have this steaming bowl of incredibly beautiful, smoky because it, it's it's smoky from the wood, but it's also smoky from the in- ingredients because the um, the shrimps um, and the the, the uh, other ingredients have been charred. Um, so it's just kind of a, a real way of like ready break, I suppose. It's something that just infuses you immediately and just chases any chill away. And so this is something that to me is is something that I associate with chill and I associate with comfort and I associate with being with my family on an adventure because I'm on my way to Mogo. So So of course the Lonely Planet version of Burma is what you describe in through the Burmese fried chicken um, in your second food moment. Tell me about that. It's less of a childhood memory, more of a I'm back in Burma and I'm going to eat good things. Um, so one of the, the things that we do when we, we go on kind of trips out, because so the country, Burma is predominantly Buddhist. It's like 90% Buddhist. And so one of the things you do in, in where someone here might go to Chessington or <laughs> Windsor Castle, let's say, we go to a temple, right? And so... Um, and so the temples are dotted all around the country. Um, and one of the, the biggest ones is actually quite quite amusing. It's in on Mount Boba, so it's kind of north of Mandalay. Um, and this mountain is interesting because it, it perfectly depicts the kind of mix-up of religions that Burma has. Because although, as I said, it's predominantly Buddhist, we have this thing where we still believe in animism. So animism is the belief that there are sprites and spirits everywhere. So you might have... Um, 
and so you might have a, you know a, a spirit that's in your car even you might have a spirit that's in a tree um and so Boba is home to lots of these kind of spirits they're called nuts in Burbies um so and 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 Boba um has um all sorts of these um shrines all the way up the mountain so even though the top is dedicated to the, the chief nut who is i can't remember her name but basically she is like the mother of all of these spirits um and then on the way up you have these kind of minor nuts these tiny spirits tiny deities um and so to get there it, it's a bit of a drive you have to hire a car um and it, it's, it's a good few hours um so it's another one of the things where you have to stop for a comfort break so whenever we stop, there's a particular village that we stop at and you can be parked for about three seconds and then this kind of rush of women come towards you um, and they've all got these panniers, basically, these bamboo panniers of fried chicken. Um, and it is, you, you kind of, you smell it before you see it because it's so incredibly fragrant. Um, you know, this is beautiful, amazing smelling fried chicken. Um, and so they kind of, batter on your windows delicately saying buy my chicken buy my chicken <laughs> and, and, so, and so we're always like put the window down for the love of god we want to eat this chicken as soon as we can and what happens is that we end up just but they, they basically throw the nicest morsels at you and we're all kind of chewing away and then my poor mother is still bartering with for prices while we're already eating the stuff and that's often the way in Burma actually so we're already kind of helping ourselves and whoever's got the wallet basically is trying to deal Those with women the, know the you're not going to turn it down well exactly um and it's really nice because you know you have this chicken but it's usually accompanied with something else so you know you'll have the sticky rice again or you'll have Another thing which I didn't realise was expensive in this country, but quail eggs. Quail eggs are like ten a penny in Burma. So they'll come to you with little um, plastic bags of um, boiled quail eggs to just chew on. And so we'd be fighting for those. And, and my, you know, my mum and my aunt and just, who, who, like I said, whoever's decided that they're going to pay that that time are just looking at us slightly disdainfully because obviously we're, we're terrible children who just can't control ourselves. And I say children, you know, I'm 40, 41, sorry. So, <laughs> but we're still unable to, to you know, contain our passion for this amazing food that's just fresh off the walk. And it's it's funny because I think they must get our schedules. I think there must be some kind of mysterious communication it's because it's never. It's well, actually, <laughs> they're telling now them that it, because it is literally fresh off the walk when they appear. It's never lukewarm. It never looks dried out. It's just juicy well, as why anything. Why are you surprised? So. I, I, yeah, it's the sprites. It's the <laughs> they're in charge of anything. <laughs> Let's go into your third food moment. Now, this this kind of represents um, it's it's a dish that your beloved grandfather used to cook. Now, he was in the army. Um, my father-in-law yes. fought in Burma during the Second World War, and it is the major connection, isn't it, with Britain? Yes, yes. and why a lot of the yeah. Burmese community actually settled here, probably. Yes, yes, he was, it was, uh, for a short time, I think he was even stationed in Salisbury, because, you know, obviously, when it was part of the British Empire, he was part of the British Army. Um, but yeah, he, my grandfather, so this is when I mentioned that um, my grandparents came and lived with us when I was three years old. Um, and so my, my grandfather, I, in a, I'll compare him to Winston Churchill, but only insofar as to say that he wasn't the best civilian. Um, he was a fantastic soldier. Um, he is someone who I admired greatly, and I wish I wish I'd been able to preserve more of his stories because, basically, um, when um, you know the Burmese government 
the military junta took over he was he became a dissident he was a freedom fighter and he was actually imprisoned as a political prisoner for quite a long time it you know he was in prison until my father was 12 years old um and then kind of intermittently in and out um but uh, when i um obviously when when i was born he had been out of prison for a while but i think his time in prison his time um, being in the army had I think it made him a little bit cynical, I have to say. Um, and so the, the days that he remembered best were actually probably his days when he had comrades um, and they did things like they mucked in. He, he, loved, he loved corned beef. He used to call it bully beef. Um, he loved baked beans. He loved all of those kind of things. And when we ended up visiting him in turn in Burma, this is the kind of thing that we used to take um, to, to, for him because you couldn't get any of this stuff in Burma. Um, and one of the things that we took one time, this was relatively recently so just before the liquid restrictions came in i ended up taking him like a, a three liter two liter bottle of cider because that was something that he missed which he couldn't get very easily either so i had that in my rucksack on the plane and i was married already at that time and my husband you know very much mocked me because he thought it was hilarious that i was taking this basically quite cheap cider in my rucksack for my grandfather um but the one dish that my grandfather did cook for us all the time when he came and lived with us was this pilchard dish um and it was something that he would do in his mess tin and it was basically canned canned fish um and onions and tomatoes and a little bit of seasoning um and it you know he threw it together it would take probably about five ten minutes and it was unnecessarily delicious for the amount of effort that went into it and for the ingredients that went into it and so my grandfather would make this for us um you know when he said ah oh, i'm gonna be cooking today um and it was just such a treat because um I just thought this is my huge, handsome grandfather because he was he was six foot four, and so this was this is this amazing man who I loved beyond anything cooking this dish that he had perfected with his chums in the army, and it was you know it just meant so much to me that he was doing this and like I said because he was incredibly tall when he wore his sarong it would kind of swing in the middle like a hammock when he sat down and so as I said I was three years old so I would sit in there and I would chat to him while he was telling me stories or while I was eating this um kind of pilchard dish and so for me it's indivisible yeah. from him so when I cook it now I still even in the book I called it popo because popo is the Burmese name for grandma yeah. grandfather so yeah, yeah. It's, it's his dish that it's I It's a I beautiful <laughs> story it's a lovely I, I love food that's so so connected with story and that's just a, a wonderful example of it so is your last food moment your glamorous great aunt a cheroot tycoon um, who first treated you to this dessert which looks incredible as well tell us about your great aunt so so my great my great aunt was the oldest of four sisters. Um, my they were all very very independent. Uh, my grandmother she owned a printing press. My great aunt was one of the probably the leading writers in Burma. She was and a, a, dissident. a novelist, but she was also a journalist. She was a dissident. She was a dissident journalist. There, there are there are Wikipedia articles about her. So she you know it was a, it was a very formidable um, family of sisters. Um, some brothers too, but you know, they, were, they were less interesting. <laughs> Um, um, and then my great aunt, she um, she was called Nagado, and the reason she was called Nagado is Nagar is um, like a legendary dragon in Burmese mythology, and it was also the branding she used for the cheroots. Um, and so she was basically the dra the dragon queen, basically. Um, and she was so so wealthy. I mean, the rest of us were pretty well off. This is my dad's side of the family in Mandalay, but she was kind of 
properly dripping. She had houses in every town. Um, and so, and she was actually slightly frightening as well because she, I guess she was, you know, I was already saying that, you know, there was a matriarchy, women are already very confident. She was beyond confident. She, and, and I, I also mentioned that she looked like Betty Davis, so she was incredibly beautiful as well. Um, but she also had those eyebrows that can strike the fear of God into you. <laughs> so, and so we went to see her. Um, this is when I was eight years old. Um, and for some reason, she'd asked to see me by myself. And I don't know whether it was to kind of, to, to see what kind of woman I was, or girl, I, I was only eight years old. But I think she wanted to judge me for myself. So my two brothers were very angry about this because they were like, why does she want to see Mimi and not us? So so I was led into, I guess it's her, her chambers. Um, and I sat down in front of her and she just kind of looked at me and smiled at me for ages. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And it was quite hard to look directly at her because she was wearing so much jewellery and she had the biggest diamond earrings I've ever seen. Um, but the way kind of Burmese women um, are dressed is that they, they have jewels all over their arms and all over their kind of necklaces and earrings, but they also have them on their hair because um, she had this really beautiful bun and so she had kind of diamonds woven around her hair as well. So I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what do I say? Shall I just smile? I don't know what to do. Um, and then she just started laughing, not in a cruel way. She was just kind of chuckling to herself. And I think she decided that I passed muster. It was very... <laughs> Why? Was, because I, you, you came know. into the room. You were brave enough to because even I came be into the there. Room. How yeah, extraordinary. I think so. I think so. Um, because I, she, you know, she was a legend. She, she really was a legend. And so I, I sat there and then she kind of beckoned to her maid and her maid went out of the room, came back in and she just had this you know, this tall Sunday glass that was full of this um, dessert, which is called Faluda. And I'd never had Faluda before, and I didn't know what it was, but all I knew was that it smelt beautiful because it was rose, um, and it was bright pink. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to get a treat now. <laughs> um, and then my great aunt just kind of gestured to me and told me to tuck in, and so I did. And so it was just very bizarre, but really nice oh um, that I was just goodness. sitting there, just you know, eating this really beautiful dessert that I'd never had before, while this basically this goddess was sitting in front of me. That's oh amazing! And you do say that part of the power of women is that they do the food and they pass the recipe on from mother to daughter, from great aunt to great niece. Maybe that's what she was yes. doing. Maybe kind of maybe you know giving you this extraordinary treat in the hope that you would then pass that on somehow to your yeah. readers you know however many so. years it, later it was definitely a gift I mean I, I you could tell from her face that she she knew that I'd never had it before and she was incredibly pleased with herself so um but yeah it was a, it was a real moment it was it was it, it I still remember it so clearly and like I said this is you know over 30 years ago but it was it was quite a cinematic feeling and it didn't help that she looked like a Hollywood star so amazing absolutely amazing I mean Burmese food because of your books and the Rangoon sisters who I've, I interviewed mm -hmm. earlier this week actually Burmese food is becoming the thing it's it's very trendy it's in Spitalfields Market and there's a restaurant in, in Shoreditch and it's very cool mm -hmm. but what I love about your book is that it is full of the smells and the sounds and these extraordinary stories of heritage and identity. It's it's a wonderful read. What was your intention? What was your first pitch to the publisher? Um, I think my 
pitch was that I thought I had a story to tell, which wasn't quite the same as others that I'd had come before me, because, you know, there have been books about Burmese food around. Um, mine, I guess, is slightly different because I, I, I think I said in my introduction, my parents were very much of the mind that at some point they would go back to Burma. Now, you know, like I said, this is 40 years on and they still haven't returned permanently. But it was an idea that it wasn't just trying to preserve my heritage. It was an idea that they wanted me to be able to, to live in Burma, to function, to be able to communicate with my family. So, you know, they taught me Burmese from the very start. They made sure I was familiar with the foods that was av- that were available in this country. They made sure that... Here's a story. So when I was... Um, little before I went to Burma for the first time we um you know I said that we we kind of communicated we had letters going back and forth one of the things was that my aunt so this is the daughter of the lady that was a dissident writer and journalist she um was one of the the publishers of a comic called Shui Luei and this comic um was I guess it's like Arbino. It was very popular throughout the whole country um and astonishingly they had a bilingual version so even though my reading wasn't fantastic they had the english version that i could read and so i was kind of lapping up burmese culture through these comics as much as through you know my family through stories um and it got to the point where i was i guess i was so immersed in both worlds that i remember i did um like a reasoning um test when i was at school so like a precursor to the 11 plus i suppose and it was one of those things where it said man is to car as boy is to bicycle so the bit that was bicycle was blanked out and so it was seven letters i suppose um and i got it wrong because i put man is to car as boy is to buffalo because from my heritage, from kind of reading about the world and life in Burma, to me, it made more sense that a boy was riding a buffalo than a bicycle. <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to convey the fact that I'm someone that, I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't born in Burma. I wasn't brought up in Burma. I was born here, but I'm someone that has lived both lives and I have both those worlds and cultures inside me. And I thought I was unusual in that respect. And yeah. so I wanted to be able to share that with people. And it's a dream. It's that inner experience that Mm. you communicate through story and through your beautiful writing. You are able to transport us to a place that actually we have no access to, really. (laughs) Nobody's going to go to Myanmar, really, on a holiday. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to choose to go there for for all sorts of political reasons. Mm. It's not about that. Mm. It's it's an experience of something that comes from way deep inside you. And, And I'm really charmed by it so thank you so much Mimi for giving us such a wonderful read thank you, <laughs> thanks for listening to Cooking the Books next week we're back for a Michelin star chat with Tom Kerridge do subscribe, rate, review go to juliesmith.com and sign up for my mailing list if you want to hear more and I'll see you next week bye